You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Of all the religions of the world, I don't know if you realize this, there is no religion that believes that or professes that God comes to us as one of us to be with us like Christianity does. It's fascinating, okay? We're going to explore that a little more. And then our theme verse as well is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, where the angel uh, Gabriel came to Mary and said to her this verse of prophecy from the book of Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And can you say that last half of that verse with me? And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, you are with us right now in the midst of everything that's going on in our lives. And some people, Lord, are right now in the middle of that valley. And others, O oh Lord, are in the middle of the storm. And others may be on the mountaintop here this morning. And others may be in that lonely desert. But we are never alone, Lord. You are with us. Teach us the depth of that in this season, Lord, called Advent, as we prepare for Christmas. Teach us how wonderful and amazing your grace is and your presence in our lives is. Lord, we pray, especially for those who are struggling at this season of the year, where they feel disconnected or alienated or lost or lonely or blue or grieving, that you would... Um, do an amazing job in there, that you would work in them such a way that they would gather around your word, around your truth, and be filled by your spirit with your presence, Lord, this Christmas season, and use us here at Thrive, as well as all the gospel ministries across Southwest Florida to do the same for those in our community. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our key thought today about the storm is this, never allow the presence of the storm to cause you to doubt the presence of God, okay? I don't care how long that storm lasts, okay? Some storms last a long time, and in fact, this is what's fascinating about the storm that occurs here in the book of Acts. At the end of the book of Acts, it's, have, if you've read the book of Acts, it starts out like with a bang, the day of Pentecost, and all these things are happening. By the end of the book of Acts, it's on the story of Paul, and a huge chunk of the end of the book of Acts is this journey Paul has in a ship in the midst of a storm. In fact, it is so long, it's 59 verses of the book of Acts. It's just this one seafaring journey. That 6% of the entire book is the story where he's stuck in a storm. For two weeks, they're in the storm and the ship is possibly falling apart and all the sorts of issues. And yet it's just amazing what all, <laughs> what's going on in here. So, and the point is never doubt the presence of God in the midst of the presence of a storm. So we're going to just read a part of that because I mean, 59 verses is a long reading. Okay. Um, this is from Acts 27 verses 20 to 26. So this has been going on for a while. And notice how this starts. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. They basically all give it up. The soldiers on the boat, the sailors on the boat, the prisoners on the boat. All but one. 
Okay. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> I'm sure that went over really well. But he had warned them ahead of time, don't, this is the winter, this is when the storms happen, don't go on the sea, let's wait. But they didn't, okay? You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, a commentator and biblical scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, states about this text that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, is showing right now his Hellenistic roots. Okay? Um, Luke was a physician, from what we can gather in the Bible, and he was Greek or Hellenistic. And the reason why I say that, why Timothy Johnson says this, Luke Timothy Johnson, is because this seafaring story is one of the few in the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. You know, the, the Israelites were not seafaring people. They were stuck on land. There's only one story in all of the Old Testament that really deals with the sea. And you know that one, the Jonah and the great fish, right? That's it. But in Greek literature, in the Greco-Roman rule, the Greeks were on the sea all the time. And there are stories, the Odyssey, the Iliad, all these stories and lengthy stories about being on the sea and being in the midst of the storm, so much so that these storm stories and these seafaring stories become metaphors in the Greek world for the journey of life. And the storm itself is the obstacles and the evil that penetrates your life and might throw you off course or destroy you or whatever, okay? So... We see in these stories some big lessons in the Greek world. So Luke is, why does he go on forever, 59 verses, on this one incident in Paul's life? And it's because he wants to show you what Paul is like in the middle of a storm and how we can be in the middle of a storm. Uh, Troy Troftgruben, what a name. Troy M. Troftgruben said, located where it is, the final sea journey builds anticipation concerning Paul's fate, raises doubts about whether he will arrive and testify in Rome, slows the pace of the story dramatically, and suspends questions about the story's outcome in ways that provoke tension and expectation. And I have a feeling there are storms that people have faced in their lives, difficulties that do much the same. It's all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, I thought I was making progress, and then all of this happened. Have you ever felt that way? Or, um, boy, it just seems to be going on and on and on, and I can't get out of... And Luke is using this story as a metaphor for your life and ours to say, never doubt the presence of God in the midst of the presence of a storm. So how you handle yourself in the storm becomes a way, a paradigm, let's say, for how you handle all of life and what life is like. So we're going to explore this text in three areas, the three Ps of the paradox, the product, and the presence. The paradox. Now, why I bring this up is because um, 
storms, this metaphor, this whole life. Um, a lot of people looked at life in one of two ways in the time of Paul. There were two different philosophies that were going on at the time of Paul that were the most popular and the most common. Um, they were of the Stoics and the Epicureans. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, and you really don't need to, but why I bring it up is because most people today still are either fall into the Stoic camp or the Epicurean camp. Um, the Stoics believed that life is all of necessity. Everything happens because it had to happen that way. Okay? They believed in fate. Basically, everything in life just falls in line with fate. There are people today, if you talk to certain scientists, you will find out, well, why did I fall in love with this person? Because the chemical combinations in your body, you know, and you can hear basically determinism behind certain behavioral psychologists as well as scientists of why everything just is the way it is because it had to be that way because we are products of our biology, our sociology, our upbringing, our whatever. We are programmed from beginning to end and you're just part of the program, okay? Now, the Stoics didn't think that way specifically, but they looked at one fateful story as kind of archetypal for their lives, and it was called Oedipus Rex. Anybody ever hear of that one? And in the end, it's a tragedy where Oedipus, I read it in high school. I, well, I was supposed to read it in high school. I kind of, <laughs> you know, this, uh, basically Oedipus ends up because he has to. There's no way around it. He's going to end up killing his father and marrying his mom, Boom. And then he's all upset about that, pokes his eyes out, and wanders the rest of his life blind in the world. What a nice story, huh? But that is, when, when you are fatalistic, often people just fall into this kind of thinking, right? And all of a sudden, it, they're, they're cynical, and they're jaded, and they're upset. Now, the other side of it were the Epicureans who believed that everything in life is random and it just happens and it doesn't have to happen and it's all up to you and what you make of it and what you do with it. So suffering for them was something you were supposed to avoid at all costs, whereas for the Stoics said, well, it is what it is and so you need to, to deal with it and you just put up with it and you um, show you who you really are in the midst of suffering. And the Bible comes into all of this and has a more of a paradoxical nuanced understanding of how does this all fit together. And it comes out in Paul here when in this larger story, Paul says a couple of things. He first says, look at this in Acts 27. Do you see where he says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar is what the angel tells him. So he knows how the story is going to turn out, right? But then again, he says a later, later on in the book of Acts here in uh, verses 30 to 32, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, notice, and ever since the sailors and the soldiers, army, navy have not gotten along. <laughs> sailors are trying to leave. And the soldiers basically make sure that they don't. But he says this, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now, which one is it? Is he going to stand before Rome for sure? Or, and it's all set? 
or is it up to us? And the answer in the Bible would say, yes. <laughs> yes. It reminds me, I think, because there are uh, how these things work together. The Bible's very nuanced on this is the serenity prayer that many of you may have heard of or seen in one form. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. In other words, there are things that are beyond you that you can trust God for that inevitably, ultimately, overall, he's got a plan, he's, got, he's in charge, everything's going to work out. And yet at the same time, there are things that God gives you the ability to make a difference in that he wants you and expects that you do at the same time. For instance, when the Gospels talk about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, the devil wanted Jesus to cross that line. He said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the, uh, or he wanted Jesus to jump off the temple because he quoted scripture. The angels have charge of you. Nothing will happen to you. And Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord your God or put him to the test. In other words, don't do something stupid to try to prove God's got it all in his hands. Do you understand? It's like, oh, well, yeah, God's got me. I've got it. So I don't. No, that's why you still wear seat belts. You still eat healthily. You exercise, you care for yourself because those things God has given you to be able to do. And yet, in another sense, your health, your life, is all in God's hands. Both and, not either or. That means, I think, you can have peace in life. You don't have to worry about things you cannot control. God has it. There are things that are above your pay grade to even be concerned about. God is going to take care of that. It also means you can be positively involved with God, believing that what you actually do does make a difference, and he uses that. That's part of the paradox in the story. There's another paradox. And that has, occurs with the idea, like I said, Luke is showing this story as a metaphor, and the metaphor of the storm becomes the evil and suffering and difficulties in this world. And the question is, really, why does it even happen in the first place? Why can't they just smooth sail to Rome, Paul, see Caesar, do his thing? Why does evil even come up in the story? Is it inevitable? Does it have to happen? Or is it something to be avoided? Or how do you handle that? It's the question um, in uh, philosophical terms called theodicy. I don't know if you've heard that word before. It basically means, why is there a good God and suffering in the world at the same time? And the syllogism kind of goes like this. The biblical God is all-loving and all-powerful, and therefore he would not fill the world with pointless suffering. Second point is, the world is filled with pointless suffering. Third point is, Therefore, that God cannot exist. There are people who believe that very strongly. Um, next semester, when I'm teaching the New Testament at FGCU for the first time, there's one book by 
someone who was an evangelical Christian, Bart Ehrman, who is no longer a Christian, and he's an agnostic. And the reason why he changed was not because he looked at the stories in the gospel and said they can't happen. He looked philosophically at the suffering in this world, the pointless suffering. You can watch this on YouTube. And he just couldn't believe there could be a God who exists with all this pointless suffering in the world. And so he became an agnostic. So he says, how could, God believe, uh, how could I believe in a God, a good God, if this is going on? Now, what's fascinating about this syllogism is there is an assumption in the middle of it. That is that suffering is pointless. Now, I'll tell you, there have been many times in my life that my mild, I mean, I have not really faced anything much compared to many people in this world. And I look at it and go like, this is pointless, right? But um, how can I be sure that it's pointless? It's fascinating. So I'm agnostic, or people can be agnostic about God's existence, but they seem to be all-knowing about suffering. Shouldn't they at least be as agnostic about suffering and going like, well, I don't know why it happened. Instead of, I know it can't be the real thing. This makes no sense. Well, do you understand? So they are agnostic about God, but not about their knowledge of suffering. In fact, they seem to know as much as God, if not more, about suffering than they do about God. That's part of the problem. Here's an example. Some of you have young children. Some of you will have children who are a few years older. And when they're about five years old, assume this. Assume that all of a sudden, you, the main breadwinner of the family, receive a job offer for five times your salary that you are currently making. And it is also your dream job, but it means that you have to move out of state. And you go to your daughter and you say to her, honey, we're going to be moving. What's her response going to be at age five? Why? This makes no sense. I don't want to leave. I've got my friends at school. I've got my friends in the neighborhood. I've got my room. I've got everything I want. And you could try to logically explain to your five-year-old, you know how that goes, (laughs) that why in the future this will open up so many possibilities for college and, you know, all sorts of, do you think that's going to be a, it's pointless, and you have to turn to your daughter and say, I'm so sorry, honey, but we're going to move anyway. Now, the gap between you as the parent and your five-year-old is so big that it's hard to explain to the five-year-old why this is going to happen. Just think, the gap between God, your father, and you is so much greater If there is such a God that's strong enough and big enough that you can be angry with him over allowing things to happen in your life, isn't God also big enough to have a reason that goes beyond what you can handle, that you can comprehend in your life as well? You can't really have it both ways to say God's big enough to have stopped it at the same time God is small enough not to have any reasons beyond what I can handle. So the paradox. The Bible is very nuanced in understanding all of these things. Yes, 
a complex view of God's sovereignty, God's ability, God's wisdom, God's understanding, God promises to hold on to you and yet allowing you the freedom to have different things in your life and be part of that plan, the human events. So that's the paradox. Now let's go on to the product. That is, what is the result of going through this storm for Paul? What's fascinating, if you read Acts 27, you will find all the different characters, people are freaking out. The, the sailors are even trying to get off the boat. But Paul, he's calm in the midst of the storm. He has this peace. In fact, he goes around encouraging the sailors and the soldiers and their fellow prisoners. And he is a prisoner. He is under guard. He is in chains. And yet he is the only one free from fear and worry and anxiety over this storm. It's evident in the storm. He says um, this, and this is what he says in Acts 27, to 36. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day. Can you imagine 14 days on a boat that's rocking and rolling? <laughs> 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Paul is leaning in the midst of the storm on the words of Jesus himself. And Luke, who wrote Acts, also wrote the Gospel Luke. And Jesus says in the Gospel Luke this phrase about not a hair on your head. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, did you just, did you read, did you see what, what? Do you understand this? What does this mean? Some of you will be put to death, but not a hair of your head. Am I just going to look good in my casket? I mean, what is he getting at? And I think when we unpack this and understand what's going on, it, not a hair of your head will perish means that God has an intricate plan for your life. He knows everything that's going on. And yet, at the same time, what he is working in your life and working through you is that you will be a person who is able to show love and truth and peace and justice in this world. You will be the one who goes forth and does all these wonderful things, but there will be suffering that comes along with it. You will not avoid the suffering It'll come along, just like it did for Jesus. When you go through suffering by patient endurance, you will gain life. You will gain your eternal life. You will still have that. Now, a lot of people want to believe, and a number of preachers in the United States, maybe around the world too now, are preaching kind of a prosperity gospel that will say, you know what? The Christian life is all victory, 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 glory, 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 wonder, 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 
one after the other. And anytime suffering or difficulty comes in, it's abnormal to the Christian life. It's really hard to say that when you look at the life of Jesus, the one we're following. Now, there are blessings, and there is glory, and there is wonder, and there's blessings in this story, but it is through the suffering, not in spite of it. It is through the difficulties, not around it. Suffering is not to be avoided. It is not necessarily to just be inevitable, but it is used by God for your good. Now, Paul makes references of these things. Later on, he wrote a book, 2 Corinthians, another letter to this church, and this was after this journey in Acts, okay? And he says this about his own life, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, less one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. Do you know this? This is the third shipwreck in Acts 27. <laughs> I look at his track record, I wonder if I want to be his companion. I don't think I'm going to travel with you, Paul. <laughs> Can you imagine that? And yet, earlier in the letter, this is what he says about his ministry and what it's like. So we do not lose heart. Next slide. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is being wasted away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary of, did you just... He considers all the things he just said, light, momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So, a lot of people believe that suffering can really ruin somebody's life. It might, but the lack of suffering, I can guarantee, will ruin someone's life. The lack of any difficulty stalled. You've probably met people who've had just a perfectly easy life, no, no problems, no struggles, no doubts, no, no any. And you know what they are? They're full of themselves, right? They're haughty. They're arrogant. They really are very self-centered, and they have no clue. And it's hard to be around people like this because you can't open up about yourself. You can't open about your doubts or your struggles or anything else. They're not real. They're fake. At least they feel it. They're shallow. Now, I don't wish any difficulties on anyone, and yet I know God uses them to deepen you, to refine you, to remove that self-centeredness from you, and that know-it-allness. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 5, where he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Get it? In my leadership classes at FGCU, one of the issues is the majority of people understand the most important aspect of leadership isn't the knowledge that you have up here. It's not even the skill of being a good presenter, but it's really being a good, a person I'd want to be like. That is, a character, having character, having patience, having compassion, having courage, having um, substance to their life. You want to follow someone who's not just good at speaking and has a lot of knowledge. They may be a jerk. You want someone who has a good character. 
And then I asked the question, how do you gain character? And one student this year said, through going through tough times, they finally understood it. You don't get it from just reading a book. You go through tough times, and guess what? God uses it. Helen Keller said the same thing. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition-inspired, and success achieved. And yet I would ask Helen Keller, even herself, and say, how is that possible? Because I've known people who have gone through difficulties and sufferings, and they just become bitter, or they become reserved, or they become so cautious and gun-shy to not do anything anymore and try to be insular and take care of themselves. Suffering does not necessarily produce good character, but it can. And the real answer is going to be in this, the presence. The presence. One of the neatest little verses, Paul is talking to a bunch of soldiers from Rome and sailors, none of whom who are Hebrews or Christian, and the way he describes his God is this way. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Other translations say, the God who, the God who is I am, whose I am. That is, my, I'm related to this God and the one I serve. Paul knew whose he was. And he knew that even in the midst of the storm, his God was present. When the storm came, tragedy didn't come with it to say, oh my goodness, God has abandoned me. No, Paul knew to never allow the presence of a storm to cause you to doubt the presence of God. Now, how does he know that? And it comes back to this phrase, you know, it comes back to that phrase, the God whom I, to whom I belong or whose God I am, his identity. Now, I've counseled people over the last 30-ish years who have experienced tragedy and loss, et cetera, not probably as many as many other pastors. And I've been by the bedside of many who've gone through very difficult things. And there have been stuff that people ask the question, why? Why is this happening? And I am not ever, ever trivializing any of those questions by any means. But you know what I've learned over time? They aren't looking for a logical answer to that. They're not looking for a like, oh, well, you know, this is why it happened, <laughs> right? And they're not even looking necessarily for a theological answer. Well, God is allowing blah, 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 That's the last. You know what they're looking for? Someone to be with them. Someone to grieve with them. Someone to just be alongside of them. Someone to care about them. And I don't know if you know this. Like I mentioned it a little at the, end, or at the beginning of this message. There is no other religion, no other faith, no other philosophy that actually proclaims and believes that God is with you. Okay? That God feels your pain and your agony and your loneliness. Only Christianity says that God himself lost his own son. Only Christianity says God himself has been tortured. God lost his friends. Only Christianity is crazy enough 
to proclaim that God on the cross and Jesus Christ cried out with the question, why? And no answer was given him. Now, some religions will say that God is personal, that, that there is a personality behind God, but that God at that time is distant from the world, and he, he's over there somewhere. He started things off. He just relates to you in a very distant, all-knowing way. There are faiths like that. Then there are other faiths that say, no, God is imminently close as an impersonal force that runs like a force through all things. But there is no other faith that talks about God actually becoming one with us, taking on our humanness, our flesh. That God personally comes alongside of you, is present in the midst of your suffering, feeling what you're feeling, and agonizing with you. He's not one step removed. He's not somewhere else. He freely chooses to suffer with you head on. And we know that through the cross of Jesus Christ and his death there and his glorious resurrection, that God is with us. I might not know exactly the reason why something's happening in my life, but I do know who is always with me. That God is not indifferent to my struggles. He cares about me so deeply. He gave everything he suffered and experienced it all in his son. So that's the paradox the product, and the presence. God is with us in the storm. John Newton, the great hymn writer and Christian, wrote this, Begone, unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you. We need you always with us. We thank you, Lord, that you are so intimately involved that you took on all the sufferings of this world, all the sin in our life, all the foibles and mistakes, and you have not abandoned us, you have not left us, you do not hide from us, that you come near to us, and you want us to trust you always. When we are in the midst of a storm, Lord, Show us more clearly your presence. Help us to trust you like Paul did. Give us that peace that it may be seen by others and they might start to believe and trust in you as well. And for anyone here right now in the midst of a storm, Lord God, we want you to come close and help us to be close with them and to be for them and to care about them, Lord. Minister to them through your Holy Spirit now. All this we lift up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.